0: Welcome to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Ramin. If you or someone you are close to is dealing with addiction, there are so many programs out there that can help you. But how do you gauge which ones are going to work the best for you? Some are expensive, some deal with some of the issues, but don't get to the heart of the matter. Others treat the problem at a basic level, but don't determine ultimate success. Join us now for an hour that sets out to be truly groundbreaking, and will help you discover how to find the best program for your addiction problem. Now, here is Ross Rameen.
1: How you doing? Welcome to the show. This is Ross Rameen. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We really appreciate it. We're coming to you from Los Angeles, California at the Rebos Treatment Center here in LA on the west side. If you want to find out more information about our uh, treatment center, you can go to R-E-B-O-S, com, And you can look me up on Twitter as just Ross Rameen. That's my handle. And so thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We have another episode of our client files that we're doing today. And we have a great guest. And we have Sean who is 24 years old. He's been sober now, coming up on five months. Mm-hmm. Five months of sobriety from heroin. Um, he's kind of done, I'm getting the gist of it, a little bit of everything, but heroin is his, yeah. is his honey hole mm-hmm. uh, of love, <laughs> so to say. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Tell me about, so heroin, you you told me that you started taking this, I don't know why this doesn't shock me anymore, but it, it just still... It just sends bad tingles up my spine every time I hear this. You started doing oxys when you were 13. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, to me, I'm seeing this every day now. Every day. It's common. Was that your first thing you ever tried? Or did you smoke weed first? I smoked weed first. I'm starting to find people now. Oh, my pen. I'm starting to find people now that come in and I say, what was the first thing you tried? And they're saying pills. It's not weed. Wow. It's not robbing their their parents like liquor cabinet. You know, taking a little of this, little of that, putting into like a <laughs> like yeah, a yeah. like a water bottle, and let's go outside or wherever you go and have your good time. They're starting with pills. Um, and you grew up over on the East Coast, correct? Yes. Was how'd you get in? How'd you get oxys at thirteen? I know um, what, me at thirteen. I didn't do anything until I was about 16 and a half, 17.
2: Yeah. Um, where I was from, there was a lot of uh, overprescribing. So all of my friends' parents would get these, like, 120-count oxy and they just didn't know what to do with them. They, you know, they used them as they needed them, but they weren't... They didn't. So they this. were the
1: parents' pills.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And the parents maybe didn't have, like, that physical allergy or anything like that. Like, they could, they could take them medicinally and not notice if a few were missing so a friend a friend of mine was big on, on getting as many as he could and kind of dispersing them through us it was about the seventh grade I think 13 maybe. seventh grade yeah so and
1: that's you just went right into what I'm finding right now yeah I parents you know there's a parents liquor cabinet but there's also the parents medicine cabinet
2: yeah exactly
1: it's incredible. I mean, you think about it. You're t- you're 24 right now, mm-hmm. so this is a little over t- um, this is a little over 10 years ago. Yeah, and this is common play when you're in s- seventh grade, sixth uh, grade,
2: and the people the circle I was running in, yeah, it was absolutely common. How many kids did you have in your class? Um, Big school, small school. Fairly big. I mean, the town I grew up in was about sixty to 70,000. Uh-huh. Um, there were... So that was, that was like... So you're not miles. out in the sticks by any means. No, This is no. just like a regular old... Typical suburbs. Yeah. You know? With some urbanized areas in it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But not... I mean, you're technically doing heroin at 13 years old.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's mind-blowing. <laughs> I mean, it's... Uh, Everybody's coming up to me all the time. They're like, let's talk about gateway drugs. And I I like to talk about gateway cabinets.
2: Yeah, seriously.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's I think it's a better reference to what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the cabinets that have – it's not even – yeah, everybody's worried about the drugs. Everybody's worried about the cigarettes. And it's like – the drugs weren't your problem. It's the families that have these pills, just in mm-hmm. ready, ready hand. It's kind of nuts. So your buddy goes into his parents' medicine cabinet, skims a little off the top, so the parents don't know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and gives them out. Is he selling to you or just giving them away?
2: Selling them. Absolutely. Yeah, buddy. That's, a, that's a, <laughs> a good lucrative business right there. I bet it was. How much are you paying per pill? Uh, actually, the um, the Percocet thirties that we were getting for the most part, the blues. I was getting them from him for ten dollars, which out there is unheard of. It's usually like $30 for a 30.
1: But when you're mean. in seventh grade getting, you know, getting 30 bucks, getting this, getting that, I mean, how yes. do you get that money? You have to save that up. I mean, yeah. or do you get out of your parents' or your mom's
2: purse? There was a little bit of that, honestly, but a lot of it was just like over the, over the course of a week, like, mom, I need $5 for lunch. Every day, kind of put that aside because you know what you're going to do this weekend.
1: Yep. So it well, wasn't an everyday thing. It was on a weekend. Let's have some fun.
2: Yeah. Got it.
1: Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Were you noticing anything if you did would you do it two
2: days in a row, three days in a row? would you feel if any- I could absolutely really, yeah, were you hooked immediately mentally? yes, but not physically. no, I wasn't feeling many like any withdrawal symptoms at all. You know, I'd wake up the next day feeling kind of like shit if I had like a pretty serious bender, but then I would just kind of move on with my life, get things going. And I'd feel better in a day, yeah, um, uh, but I always was looking for more, wanted more,
1: yeah. When, so this is in grade school, Mm -hmm. you're doing this, when did it turn to more? And how did it turn to more? Um, I mean, did you start smoking weed at 13? About 11 or 12. 11 or 12, you're smoking weed. How'd you get weed at 11 or 12?
2: Um, I was hanging out with a lot of the uh, – who I, who I thought of at the time was like the cool crowd. Yeah. You know, like skateboarders and stuff, and yeah. there was just a lot of that going on. You go down to the skate park, and yeah, we're 11 or 12. We're hanging out with a lot of guys who are like in their early 20s and anywhere in between. And like somebody's passing around a, a little joint or something. Like, hell yeah, I'm 11 years old. I want to look cool. I want to smoke with everybody. Yeah. Do you, have any, do you have any thoughts or feelings about that, or was it a no-brainer? Um, at the time, I would do anything. Can so you even remember? There's, there's like, blips that I can think of. Yeah. Um, for the most part, it was a blur, but I can I can distinctly remember, like, the feelings I had. And at that point, I would have done anything if I thought it made me look cool for the group. Really? Anything. Why? Um, a lot of self-esteem issues growing up. Um, really, like, codependent relationship with my father. And um, I didn't even really realize that until I started going through a lot of the, the, the uh, one-on-ones here at Rebos. And um, started noticing that, like... I was always trying to make up for something. Didn't know what. Didn't really have that ingrained in my head. But I felt like I was lacking. And I needed to, to make up for it in some way. So I, I thought, in my opinion, or in my head, that um, like befriending the cool crowd was like my way to feel better about myself and to, to be a better human being. Interesting. So, what, uh, so growing up,
1: yeah, I mean... So you're telling me that you had, so coming here, you found out about self-esteem issues back then?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of always knew they were there because like I was, I was a depressed kid, a lot of self-esteem issues, especially in high school. Why were, why were you a
1: depressed kid?
2: Um, a lot of it comes down to just the way I was perceiving actions and, and, uh, conversations. Um, I learned a lot about that reading my fifth step with my sponsor, um, because was
1: that your own doing of how you were perceiving things, or was that way of thinking um or was it that way of thinking the instilled on you by your parents? Um You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like there's I, certain things that we that we inherit from our parents through what they tell us to do, mm-hmm. like as their quote unquote parenting. Yeah. Then we obviously have our own things that we inflict on ourselves. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Do, um, so which which was
2: it? Do you think? I mean, there was absolutely some stuff with my father. Um, I had an interesting relationship with my mother, but she was always incredibly supportive of anything I wanted to do. She was kind of, kind of kind of the angel. If you want, if you want to consider my dad to be like the demon, and in that's in yeah, that devil sense. and angel. Yeah. Um, Get it. But most of the time, for me anyway, like, I just had such a strong opinion of what I wanted to do that if anybody tried to give me any advice or criticisms or anything, I thought I took it as a personal attack. Like, you, you don't think that I can do this myself. That's why you're telling me what to do. Not because you care about my future and seeing that I'm doing some things that aren't going to be beneficial to me down the road. But it was, you don't think that I can do this. Huh. So I, took, I internalized a lot of that. Really? Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. At that young age, you did. Yeah. So what what was going on with your father's relationship for that to happen?
2: Um, it wasn't the divorce or anything, because my parents my parents split early on. Um, like how early were how young I were you? I was like four years old. How early were you? How yeah. young were you? <laughs> 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 and um, so there was just like a lot of changes happening, which I think bothered me more than the fact that they were they were divorced. You know, because now my dad moved somewhere else, and he's marrying this other woman, and my mom's marrying this other guy, and step brothers and stepsisters came into the picture, and it was just so many changes all happening at once. And um, it's a lot
1: for a little head to comprehend. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But um, like at my mom's house, it was it was kind of weird, but like I really looked up to my step because they're they're several years older than I am, so like I kind of took cues from them. These are the step brothers
1: that. Your mom married a different guy. Yes. Okay. And that guy brought these guys, these these brothers in. Exactly. Got and it.
2: they were always really cool to me, and I always looked up to them, and it was a good good relationship. You hit it off the bat with them pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. And um, but on on the the flip side, at my dad's house, um, I didn't get along with my stepmom until like very recently. It Do was, you think that's
1: because she did she try to be your mom?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And you held it against her.
2: Yeah. Absolutely, she's probably a very nice lady. She, yeah, she absolutely is. <laughs> she, she probably is. A sweetheart. She's a sweetheart, but she's got this very, um, very cold way of of telling you what she thinks you should do. It's not like it doesn't feel like it's coming from a place of love. It feels like it's coming from like a like an authoritarian perspective. So she overstepped your boundary. Yeah, definitely. I had expectations that I didn't think were being met.
1: So your stepfather, though,
2: who your mom married. How, how was he with that? Was he a little smoother? He was incredibly strict, but stayed in his own lane. He was. He realized that huh. that my mom was my mom, my dad was my dad. He was married to my mom, and he'll do things for me that I need. But he's not there to to.
1: He respected your he, lane. That's exactly. a great way to put it.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah. He'd give you probably the shirt off his back if you needed. He has. Yeah. Yeah, he has. Wow. What do you mean by that?
2: Uh, just. They, my my mom, my stepdad, do not make a whole lot of money. It was incredibly tough growing up, hmm. and um, there were a lot of times where he would like forego dinner to make sure there's enough food for the rest of the kids and things things of that nature. Wow, yeah, it's tough growing up, huh? It, it could, yeah, I mean by by what I'm learning about, like other people here, I had it relatively decent. But um in my in my head at that time it was it was pretty awful.
1: Well. Wow. Well, wow. how did that weigh on you as a kid? Did you have other friends that were better off their families were better off financially than you? Was that embarrassing at all? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, I lived in a town where it was like kind of 50-50, you'd have like the, the incredibly well off and then like the, the the poverty line. Yeah. Um not a whole lot of middle class going on. And um, so, like, it it wasn't really like a, a make or break kind of thing. It wasn't anything like that. Like, you you'd have kids from from my economic level with the with the rich kids, and we'd still all be friends. But like, nobody would want to go to my house as opposed to going to their house, or nobody would want to go out to dinner with me and my family if I invited them because things things like that.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Hmm, very wild. Very, very wild. What, um, Your mom and your stepdad still married now? Yeah. Yeah? And how's that relationship? Great. Yeah? yeah. With, with you and them, still yeah. good?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, how was, about was, you and your dad, your real dad? Um, things are going phenomenally. Really? I talk to him at least once a week, sometimes more, especially in the last couple of weeks with the changes that have been happening, moving to a new house and all that. I've been yeah. talking to him a lot.
1: Cool. Right on, man. Right on.
2: And now you're hundred,
1: you're you're five, you're five months off heroin. It's mm-hmm. pretty incredible. How yeah. much heroin were you doing a You You an IV user? Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> mm. um, well, I've on never. the east coast, it's a it's a little bit different. Um, on the west coast, I'm I'm hearing, I've never even seen anything out here, but I'm hearing on the west coast you get a lot of the tar, so it's like in grams or whatever. On the east coast, we had what we call bundles, mm-hmm. um, white powder and individual plastic. China uh, white. China white. In the little wax bags and 10 bags would make a bundle is usually like a 0.1 per bag. So you get about a gram per bundle. Um, but it, it fluctuated, you know, and uh, I was doing at the end of it before I got into treatment, I was doing three bundles a day. So roughly about three grams of China White a day. And you needed that. And I needed that. There was there was no fun in that. Maybe by the last bundle. Yeah, that that's a great way to put it. That
1: wasn't fun. That was... That was work. That was needed. Yeah. Just to maintain mm-hmm. equilibrium. Yeah. <laughs> Lack of a better way to put it.
2: it I mean, it's that's just, exactly it. Just to feel normal.
1: Just to feel normal so you are not, so you don't start shitting and puking and yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. We're talking to Sean right now. Sean is 24 years old. Um, he's coming up on, he's just under five months sober um, and he's been using since he's been 13. Um, that's when it kind of, when he started using recreationally, not every day, but that's when it started dipping in. And we've talked about everything from self-esteem to issues to growing up with basically two families, dad's side, mom side, mom's side. And um, so on and so forth. And the par the parents' of medicine cabinet. It's not the it's the gateway cabinet, as I call mm-hmm. it now. Um, everybody's so dialed in on gateway drugs. It's it's the gateway cabinet, is really what it is. What's in your parents' cabinet? We got to take a quick break. I'm going to come back, and I want to hear what got you into treatment this last time. Where where were you in your head, and where where'd you get the courage to actually do it? And now to get five months, the most you've ever gotten. All right. Okay. Thanks everybody for joining us. This is Ross for This is the power to create yourself, and uh, we have another episode of Client Files, and we will be right back.
2: You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: Getting sober isn't just about not drinking and not doing drugs. It's a way of life. At Rebos, we have a team of talented professionals, each with their own clear and distinct message to walk clients from the darkest point in their lives out into the light. Rebos offers a carefully curated selection of groups and workshops in addition to a minimum of six individual sessions per week. At Rebos, we believe there are no cookie-cutter clients, and we meet every individual where they are at today. It's not a Rebos program. It's your program. Our team wants to help as many people as possible become who they want to be. And if you don't know who you want to be, we'll help you. Visit RebosTreatment.com to learn more about the Rebos Treatment Center. That's RebosTreatment.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Rameen. To find out more about Ross and the program, visit the Rebos Treatment Center website at RebosTreatment.com. Now, back to the power to create yourself.
1: Hi, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you um, being with us this week. Once again, we're coming to you from Los Angeles, California at the Rebos Treatment Center. And we are talking with Sean, who's 24. He's coming up on five months of sobriety, which is the most time you've ever gotten, correct? Um, And we are talking about gateway cabinets. Um, Everybody always talks about gateway drugs, but I think it's important to talk about gateway cabinets. Um, And Sean's story today is so um, relevant to that. That's where you started. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you were down at the skate park smoking weed a little bit, but you really got your legs by what's in in parents' cabinets. Absolutely. It might not be your parents, but it's one of your friend's parents. Yeah. And you're in sixth, seventh grade. Doing oxys, which is, you're in 6th and 7th grade, you were doing heroin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When your head, I mean, that is so young. It's mind-blowing to me. Yeah. We weren't, that's just like, I mean, I I grew up in a time when that, when pills weren't, I mean, people, people did Ritalin, but. They did Ritalin because the doctor gave it to them. It wasn't an abusive thing. Mm-hmm. At least nobody I knew from where I came from in Chicago, mm-hmm. in, the, in the suburbs of Chicago. It just was not heard of. Mm-hmm. You just didn't do it. I didn't hear about pills until I went to treatment for my first time. Wow. I, it was like, OxyCon, what the hell is that? I was doing too much coke at the bar, you know? Yeah. And I'm 20, 25, probably your age, 20, mm, yeah, 25, 26, and I'm in treatment, and people are talking about doing all these pills, and I'm watching them come off these detox of and they're just sweating. Oh yeah. Just they're you shake their hand, they're all clammy, and they're sweating, and they're sweating through their shirts, and they're like, I've been straight 20 days, and they are sweating through stuff still after 20 days.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: they're taking like fifty pills a day. They're like all jacked up and they're like out of their mind. Um and no, it's very relevant. It's very relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, what you just told me really—I I, want to talk about how you got into treatment. Okay. But I really—you just said something to me during the break that I just kind of blew my socks off, and I gotta say it. You—you you would be a pizza guy, go into an old person's house, and get, drop it on their kitchen counter. Drop the pizza on the counter. Can I come in? And you go into their medicine ca- – you, hey, can I borrow your bathroom really quick and go into their medicine cabinet? Mm-hmm. I mean, how old were you
2: when you were doing that? Uh, that was later. That was uh, late teens, early 20s. Wow. Yeah. That's that's ballsy. Yeah. Well, what the way I noticed was happening was um, the, the people that I'd asked to come inside, like, do you mind if I – do you want me to put this on your kitchen table for you? They feel like you're doing them a favor, so they're like – they love it, and you get a resounding review to your to your boss when you go back. They usually call back and say, it was so nice. He was such a sweet kid, and so like your boss thinks you're killing it. You got your fix. It was a win-win. Wow. Yeah. Did it work out pretty well most of the time? Most of the time, yeah. Wow. <sighs> Sometimes there was nothing in the cabinet. You just got to take it as a loss, but never had any kind of issues like, you know, I wasn't like intrusive. You know, if somebody was like, no, I'd rather just take it in myself, Like no, leave it at that. Yeah. There's other deliveries to do. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah.
1: No big deal. No big deal. Well, let's talk, I want to talk about how, how'd you get into treatment this last time? You're doing three bags a day, three bundles a day. So give or take three grams. Mm -hmm. That keeps you sane, Mm -hmm. so to say. Keeps you from getting sick. It's not even really getting you high. I mean, if if you got four, sweet, but three or under, you're getting a little, you're getting a little moody. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: (laughs) To say the least. What? Okay, so let's talk about how'd this go down. How'd you get into treatment this last time? Well, five months ago.
2: Five months ago was kind of a, an interesting time. Um, I'm going to preface a little bit. About six, seven months ago, I was in a car accident. Um, heavily under the influence. Uh, just went to see see one of my connects in, in a town where I usually picked up. Got in a car accident. Luckily, this nobody else east. was hurt. The southeast, yeah. Um, nobody was hurt, nothing like that, but I, I broke my wrist. Did some pretty gnarly damage. <clears throat> And um, ended up in the hospital. No no police stuff was involved. I I'm pretty good at thinking on my feet. They asked me why I was driving around at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the reason I gave them was good enough. So I didn't have any anything like investigations or anything. But I was in the hospital. And my dad found out and uh, came in. And he knew instinctually what was going on. He had kind of had it in the back of his head for a while because I was starting to slip. And, and the... Starting to slip. What does that mean? The withdrawals were getting more obvious. You know, like I was having more trouble getting money in a respectable way. You know, like next thing you know, like money is missing from the parents checking account and stuff like it was starting to get really over the top.
1: What do you, um, your withdrawal symptoms were becoming obvious. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of symptoms? Um, just for parents that are out there that are listening, what, what, what
2: were, what was your dad seeing in you? Um, Mostly just withdrawing, like in a in a like a communicative sense. Okay. Um, I would be I would be just laying in bed for, for hours at a time. Like I'd I'd wake up around like five o'clock in the morning, dope sick. But no, I didn't have any money or couldn't get anything. And like I would able I would be able to like kind of push myself into a little nap at some point, like almost like a depression nap. And I could I could waste the day away. I wouldn't feel any better but it would be a a more effective way of me to pass time until like a friend of mine would get out of work and could get some cash. So there was a lot of that just withdrawing. No, no communication. I wouldn't do any of my responsibilities. I wouldn't call out of work. I just wouldn't show up. Um, And then there was like the obvious, like, like running to the bathroom every 25 minutes, you know, or what are you doing in the bathroom? Puking, shitting, puking, shitting most of the time at the same time. Wow. Gnarly business. So, what happened five months ago? You got in this accident, and um, that was right around the time where my court date was coming up. I had a court date from a previous arrest that had that had happened um, over a year ago now, and um, I went in there and I had done an IOP or a, an outpatient program in Connecticut months and months beforehand and i did it because i had to the court said i had to i had no interest in doing it i didn't stay clean um i just went because i thought if i went that they would sign me off well they didn't so i had to go back and face the judge about that and he told me he's like listen i get it you know like there's not very many situations where a heroin addict kicks it his first try he's like i would much rather see you go to treatment than to go to jail but don't get me wrong i will send you to jail and um so, I came up with a plan, and I went to detox, and um, I went to this place called the Rushford Center in I what town it is. It's in like Portland, Connecticut, and um, did the detox there. Did five days, and they set me up with a um, my insurance. This was a big thing too. In the state of Connecticut, they declared a state of emergency on opiate opiate addiction. Yeah. So my private insurance got me nowhere. They wanted. The, what we call Husky Care is basically like uh, Medi-Cal out there. Yeah. That's, that's who was getting to the front of the line because there's just so fucking many of them. Wow. And um, so they were able to get me into a place that would take my insurance. It was uh, a wonderful place in Danbury, Connecticut on the New York line, it's very similar to uh, a Rebos-type treatment center. It was a, uh, an intensive outpatient with a sober living. Wow. And I was there for a month, and mind you, I relapsed in that month. Um, I went on like a little week run there, and um, right after that run, I bumped into, I was at an N.A. meeting down the road for my sober living, and I talked to, or I ran into somebody that I met in detox about a month earlier, Yeah, and uh, you know, a small world kind of thing. I talked to him, and we were talking for a little bit, and uh, we were both kind of in the same place. We were doing our own thing, and it wasn't working for us, so I got him into the treatment center I was at got him into my sober living, he became my roommate, Hmm. and he was telling me about this place called Rebo's, he couldn't leave Connecticut again because he was with his wife and stuff, things had changed, he wanted to come here, but he told me that he really thought that Rebo's would be the answer for me, or at least a great way for me to get my, for lack of better words, get my shit together, and um, so I had talked to for over the course of like a couple weeks with my therapist at the last treatment center, and she was concerned because I still hadn't had, like, a full month of, of sobriety. And you're looking to jump ship. And I'm looking to jump ship. So um, she she basically told me, she's like, I can't sign off for the court saying you did what you were supposed to do because you you didn't, you know? There shouldn't be any confusion there. So, um, which I understand, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of it was they were just thinking I was, like, making up my my exit strategy or yeah, my my. Yeah, it sounds like character. it. Sounds like I'm making up an aftercare plan so I can go back out and use. 100%. And um, so they're smarter than that. They wouldn't let it happen. So I got on the phone with um, as many people as I could from Rebos to set up what I could from the East Coast and have them talk to my therapist and say, I guess this is a real place. Yes, we really have him here. Yes, we're really going to do an intake when he gets here. We have a plane ticket. And um, so they signed off, the last treatment center I was at, signed off for the for the courts saying I did what I needed to do. It was like a clause saying that as, as long as I do what I need to do here yeah. for a little bit, just to get like that month sobriety that the judge was looking for. Yep. So once I hit a month clean, it had nothing to do with the courts anymore. It had nothing to do with outside influences. I'm here because I want to be here. Yeah. And there was a big psychic change for me when I relapsed at that last treatment center. And what? Yeah. Let's talk about this. The, what? What? Ha- I mean,
1: you're young. And you're doing the most addictive drug on the planet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What, what flipped it for you? Um, what flipped that switch in your head that's like, I don't want to be a drug addict anymore?
2: Well, it was, at first, I had like five days clean out of detox, right? And I felt phenomenal. It was a detox center where they did like the methadone and everything. So like I was, I was kind of taking care of the withdrawal symptoms and, you know, any anxieties or anything. So I was feeling really, really good and I was feeling really amped up and I wanted to stay sober. Well, that cloud, that cloud passed by after about a week. And so I'm at the treatment center, and I'm at the sober living, and I'm just like, ugh, I would love to get high right now. And so I set something up, and I, I did what I usually do, and I, I scammed my way into some money, got some things set up. I went, and I got got some rigs, got my stuff, did what I needed to do. Um, had a whole plan, right? Like, they had just done, done the the urine test, so I was going to use after that, yep. wait for the next one, yep. you know, but of course, Monday turns into Tuesday, turns into Friday, and you're using it half an hour before the next UA, so they found out, and basically gave me an ultimatum, they're like, you can you can stay here, and we'll let you stay here, if you promise you don't do this again, or we're going to send you to an inpatient facility up in Pennsylvania and the sticks, where you're just going to be stuck there, Yeah. so I took that as a pretty serious serious thing because I I liked the freedom of sober living, even though it was in in my opinion, just enough rope to hang myself. But I wasn't sure if being locked down was gonna be the answer for me. So I had the entire week basically detoxing in this sober living on my own. No help from medications, no detox. And I had this whole week to kinda reflect on what I did, why I went out that that most recent time. And through that process, I really like. Don't ask me why. I was never a spiritual or religious person before, but I, I prayed. I was like, "Listen, like, if there's something that I should be doing, like, please let me know." Because what I'm doing, my best thinking has gotten me detoxed in a sober yeah. living, you know, you feeling just like nothing strikes. So I was like, "If there's something out there for me, please let me know." Two days later. Um, This friend of mine who, I guess I could call him an acquaintance, really. He's a friend of mine now, but I had known him through detox. And he moved into the sober living I was at. And we started talking. It was great to have somebody. That's that's the guy that knew knew about us? Yes. So you just
1: had a guy that happened to be your roommate that happened to be here at Rebos. Yep. And that's how you got here. This is no plug. This is no nothing. This Mm -hmm. is just how it rolled. Exactly. And so you've been here now five months. Yep. What do you think in this past five months has been, um, the most difficult for you to, to overcome?
2: I would say, especially now complacency.
1: Complacency.
2: Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. You know, because like I got out here and I, like I said earlier, I had that psychic change where it wasn't about like wanting to use anymore. It was now about like what can I do to, to quell those feelings? What can I do to to move on? And um, with the with the treatment team here and the groups, like I was finding a lot of that. But you know, you, you get into any kind of funk in any kind of situation you're in. Like I I was here for about three months at the time. I would hit like my 90 day point, and I started feeling like I had all the answers. You know, I got what I could have out of out of treatment, and I thought I was ready to go. And um, luckily, at that time, my sponsor told me I was full of shit and I need to watch my Watch what I think.
1: Full of shit. Okay, hold on. <laughs> we got a lot of good stuff. we got to take a quick break in a second. So I okay. want to get into what your sponsor said, the full of shit part. Mm-hmm. And then I want to know what you went through on the – I want to know, like, the different cycles. Because you just said something to me. You were at about 90 days of sobriety mm-hmm. when something really clicked for you. So – and this is what I always tell people. There's physical sobriety and then there's emotional sobriety, and it sounds like right at the 90 days, the emotional sobriety aspect started kicking in. Absolutely, that's huge. That is huge. So let's do this. Let's take a quick break because th- these are both a can of w- can of worms. Okay. The full of shit part <laughs> from your sponsor, um, and then the emotional sobriety aspect. What started making it in because it's obviously paid off. You just got you just got named a sober living manager now. Mm-hmm. You're five months straight you're being a manager of a place it's such it's where I was at five months it's a big deal
2: yeah
1: people it's like they're not giving you the whole you know the whole car to drive but they're letting you do a little bit yeah it's it's and that's all because you're proving yourself Mm -hmm. so let's take a quick break everybody thanks so much for joining us we'll be right back
2: step into a healthier you voice america health and wellness
0: getting sober isn't just about not drinking and not doing drugs it's a way of life at rebos we have a team of talented professionals each with their own clear and distinct message to walk clients from the darkest point in their lives out into the light rebos offers a carefully curated selection of groups and workshops in addition to to a minimum of six individual sessions per week. At Rebos, we believe there are no cookie-cutter clients, and we meet every individual where they are at today. It's not a Rebos program. It's your program. Our team wants to help as many people as possible become who they want to be. And if you don't know who you want to be, we'll help you. Visit RebosTreatment.com to learn more about the Rebos Treatment Center, That's R-E-B-O-S treatment.com. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You are listening to The Power to Create Yourself with Ross Rameen. To find out more about Ross and the program, visit the Rebos Treatment Center website at Rebostreatment.com. Now, back to the power to create yourself.
1: Hi, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Sean, and uh, he is coming up on five years of sobriety, and we've had a great conversation with you, man. You're being very honest about stealing medicine from old ladies as you're a pizza man to starting to do Oxycontin when you were 13 years old. Um, stealing it from, uh, the gateway cabinets as we, um, have mm-hmm. now dubbed them as not gateway drugs, gateway cabinets. And they're in your family's house and they're probably from your parents. Um, you're stealing your parents' drugs.
0: That's what it yeah. is.
1: So now you've got five months of sobriety coming up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've just been ordained as a sober living manager. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got that going for you, which congratulations. That's a huge Thanks, feat. Man. I got it. it. I was, that's what happened to me. Um, you got it through a classy way. I got mine because my my manager was doing drugs, and so we had a a, a so to say military coup to get him out, and mm-hmm. um, and because he was out smoking crack, so we kind of took over his place, and I became just kind of the voted in manager of the place. Um, I want to talk about at ninety days of sobriety, you had a switch. You went from physical sobriety to emotional sobriety. Yeah. What happened that day to where, and for the people that don't know the difference, it's kind of like, everybody's kind of heard of the term dry drunk. Yeah. You're just, you can still act like a drug addict, even though you're not doing drugs and you can still act like a drunk, even though you're not drinking. Absolutely. I always tell people, they're like, well, I haven't relapsed. I'm like, well, actually you have, Mm -hmm. because the physical, physical sobriety is very easy. Yeah. That's easy. You've been physically sober since you left detox. Yeah. Drugs are out of your system. Now the only thing you have to compete with is the emotional part. Your
2: exactly. Head. Exactly. So at 90 days, what happened? In 90 days, I, I had this uh, realization that, um, that maybe I was passing all of the, the urine tests that I had to take, but there was still so much in my head going on that made me an addict. You know, I still had the same mindsets, the same, same thought processes, the same habits, you know, so it, it came down to, um, I talked a lot, this a lot about this with a, with a spiritual counselor here and, um, emotional sobriety was like really like learning all the different ways to, to live life. I don't want to say normally because what's normal really, but like to live life in a way that most people would live life that don't deal with, with drugs or alcohol. And, um, I found a lot of that to be, um, you're being organic. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, with yourself, you're finding your personal rhythm. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with the, uh, you're dealing with happy times and you're dealing with sad times. You're being a, you're being a productive person in society Yeah, and using what it is. And some days you're going to be sad. Exactly. And some days you're going to be really happy mm-hmm. and, but you need to be sadder or happier and you know because drugs usually
2: do that yeah yeah that was that was kind of it uh, i mean for me with heroin it was it was to not feel you know yeah. people say like oh i felt so good on heroin it's like no you didn't feel and that's why you perceived it as feeling good because there are a lot of emotions that were just being suppressed
1: yeah so um you've never had your own
2: emotion exactly you i know, mean it's, literally it's, since it, 13 it's, it's a state of arrested development until you can get yourself away from the drugs you're not developing into a into a normal human being you know like that's why in a, in a lot of treatment centers you see so much immature behaviors because these people have been using since they were immature young adults teenagers and the the there's no development through that time period
1: no they've been hijacked exactly you know it's kids adolescence comes in and then right right when puberty is going on you know your body is supposed to do this this shift you know, to go to another level where you become a man or a woman becomes like a woman, you know, mm-hmm. you go through puberty. But then people like you and I, we take this little squiggly line, little annex where we literally hijack mother nature mm-hmm. and take this other path that instead of going through that really awkward stage, we have an outside substance mm-hmm. thinking for us, Exactly. working for us. And we're not even going through the normal development. So we, we basically like we deny mother nature, human nature mm-hmm. of development. So we were, we're, um, to say the least late bloomers. Yeah. I didn't really bloom yeah. until I was 30. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sadly, um, but it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me.
2: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, um, in, in my experience, um, the biggest stuff for me to deal with wasn't the the drinking or the drugs. You know that was the solution. That was never the problem. You know in my head there were problems, and I used to to either to get away from them. Mostly, I wasn't solving them, but it seemed like they were solved for the time being. Um, so I passed that like physical sobriety part, where like the withdrawals and all the the shitty feelings that come along with detoxing are gone, and now you're at that like ninety day point where now it comes to it comes down to like changing what's inside that was making you want to do that stuff in the first place.
1: So, you said something about your sponsor calling you out.
2: Oh, yeah. What, oh yeah. Why?
1: What, what happened? And wh- how sober were you, at just, give or take 90 days? A little bit before 90
2: days, yeah. So what did he say to you? Um, I was ta- telling him that I was thinking about finishing up h- here at Reboats. I felt like I had I had done what I needed to do, processed what I needed to process, had had the help that I needed, and I was ready to just move out in the world. And, uh, told me, he told me in his words, I was full of shit. He says, he's like, that's the exact same thinking that took you out the time before and got you into all the trouble you had before. He's like, as soon as you start thinking, you've got it beat and that you don't have to worry about that anymore is when you're most fucked. How'd you take that? I took it very personally, but I prayed on it and woke up the next morning. Very and personally,
1: pr- just kind of like what you said when we first started talking you said you weren't able to take constructive criticism exactly. at all.
2: Not at all. So it was still more of that. But again, I hadn't really gone through the steps much. I was like, I think this was around the time where I was like, um, like third step, you know, like starting to admit that it's, it's, there's something out there that might be able to help me out, you know, in, for lack of better words. And um, so I didn't really have the time or the experience doing like an inventory of myself. To see what I was bringing into these situations, having done that, there's a lot of light been been shine shown on it, past tense, and um, it's a lot different now. But I think, especially like in early sobriety, if you don't have some way of working on your inside self, you're you're still just a drug addict who pisses clean. Interesting. Yeah.
1: You're still a drug addict that pisses clean.
2: Exactly. You're a dry drug.
1: What? Some pretty grown up stuff you said there, man. I mean, growing up suffering when it comes to sobriety.
2: Yeah, I mean, I like to think I take this very seriously. It's my life on the line, you know? Maybe maybe a few years ago, that wasn't a concern of mine. If anything, I'd rather just kind of fizzle out and do, just...
1: What keeps you motivated on a daily basis? You're five months sober from the, from the most potent, dangerous drug on the entire planet that they've been mm-hmm. fighting wars over for over thousands of years. Heroin. Yeah. And you sound... Very squeaky, very clean right now. Why? What What keeps that up? Because normally people at that, I mean, I'm not saying I don't believe it by any stretch of the imagination. But it's like, what keeps that positive attitude going on a day-by-day basis? Well, that's, that's – Or lack – that motivation, positive attitude, motivation, determination, you know, every adjective you mm-hmm. can think of that um, reflects moving forward.
2: Okay. Um, that's one of those things that's different for, for everyone, you know, but, um, in my case, in my experience, um, what keeps me motivated is I'll just say, I see myself in so many people, you know, I see the the attitudes that I had or the, the habits that I had in, in, in people who come into treatment or come to the meetings as newcomers. And I see a lot of them and it's, it's no longer, it's not about me, you know, it's not, I'm not thinking anymore about what I can get, you know, what, what can, what is this group going to do for me? What is this speaker at the meeting going to do for me? What is my sponsor going to do for me? It's, it's now about what I can do, what I can contribute, because I feel like I'm in a point in my life where I have something to contribute, which is a new feeling for me. You know, that never happened before. So there's, there's just the fact that maybe it's in my head that I have something to contribute and that makes me feel good. Um, being able to share my experience, strength, and hope with other people who have similar problems and to just be there for somebody when they need it because I know for, for sure that I needed somebody like that at one point. Yeah. And I still do. Don't get me wrong. like I'm, I'm not saying I've got this figured out in any way, shape, or form. I still call my sponsor when things are getting crazy. I still talk to as many people as I can. I have a really solid sober support network through the, uh, the meetings that I go to out here, whether it be AA or some of the, the refuge groups. Yeah. Just your alternatives to
1: AA. Yeah. The refuge groups and all that kind of yeah. stuff. That's incredible. Yeah. It's what you should be doing. It's the only way the only reason why I'm at where I'm at is I took a little bit of everything.
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think it's really important to to work on yourself and whatever that may be, as long as there's some forward progress and some, some feelings of improvement.
1: I think it's you know, I think and I, I'd love to know what your opinion is on it, but it really um getting sober Anytime you're trying to change your life, those, whether it's mentally, physically or spiritually, a lot of, they overlap. And what I mean by that, it's like, think about like work, physically working out, like lifting weights. Mm -hmm. There are multiple exercises to build your legs, Mm -hmm. to build your triceps, to build your chest. You know, there's regular bench, there's decline bench, there's. Um, all sorts of different things you can do, triceps, there's overhead triceps, downward triceps, there's dumbbell triceps, cable triceps, all this stuff. And when people come into this, into sobriety, they get so sidelined with one way. hmm there's only one way to do this, and it's only AA. There's only one way to do this, and it's only non-twelve step. You know, there's only one way to do it, and it's, it's this. And it's I listen. To it. There's only one way to do it, and that's some guy named Paul, and he lives down by the river. You know, and he may or may not live in a box. I don't know, but he swears by. <laughs> it. But what you just said really just kind of sparked something in my head, and it's 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 half the reason why I opened this place is. There's so many more other ways to skin a cat. Yeah, absolutely. when it comes to this, and it's like you need to do that. You need to you you need to look underneath and look in like in different places of ways to develop yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you, painting your house. If we used the same paint in the '60s to paint houses as we use now. We'd be running into peeling problems, lead problems, all this. It's always a development. How do we keep the outside mm-hmm. looking sharp on your house? But at the end of the day, the outside of the house will always need to be repainted. Mm-hmm. You will always need to be re- be repainted. Absolutely. You're going to need it. It's just called maintenance. Yeah. So I think that's what you have just tapped on is different ways to maintain yourself. Absolutely. For your spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm coming on 10 years. And wow, I'm going awesome. through, yeah, I'm pretty, it's, I don't even know what that is. I'm so blown, by, blown away by the whole damn thing. I mean, 10 years ago, I was literally a landscaper at a treatment center that I went to. Mm-hmm. That was my job. And I'm going through the steps again right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing it with a guy who is he's 30 plus years sober. He's kind of a ball buster, but he's great. And he told me the difference between a spiritual experience and a spiritual awakening. And because the first edition of the big book, Bill has said I had a spiritual um, experience, uh, spiritual experience, which is more of a boom it's like a it's like a jolt as opposed to a spiritual awakening, which most people have, it's, which is just how it sounds awakening. Mm-hmm. You slowly open your eyes and he told me, we'll kind of close on this is it's kind of like a dimmer switch on a wall. You slowly turn it on and the lights get brighter in the room which has happened to you, give or take 90 days. You started yeah. really turning that knob. But the catch is that knob has a spring action on it. So if you're not continuously putting pressure on it to make it brighter, it'll slowly go dimmer by itself.
2: Interesting. I like that.
1: So And it's just like working out. Mm-hmm. If you don't continue to work out every day, your muscles go down. Mm-hmm. You get weaker. And that's why people end up relapsing so much. They don't stay on it. And that's when, you're, um, when your sponsor said you're full of it. Yeah. Because you like you thought it was bright. You put a ceiling on yourself. It's like shut the hell up. Yeah. Like and that's one thing that people do in, in sobrieties. They always put a ceiling on themselves. They people do it in work, people do it everywhere. It's always putting a ceiling on yourself. And I can always tell, because my head is very tricky. I can always tell when my head is messing with me. Because if I think that there is a ceiling to a situation, I know to sit back. And go and check myself. Why mm-hmm. am I putting a ceiling on it? Because there is no such thing as a ceiling. You can go as high as you want to go.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very interesting.
2: Absolutely.
1: Listen, man, I can't thank you enough for being here today. You've yeah, been I fun to talk to. I really, really appreciate it, man. Your congratulations on your new job. I'm appreciate killing it. Um, keep spreading the love, dude. Appreciate you, dude. Right on. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We'll see you again next week. And, um, again, this is, um, if you want to find out more information about our program, please go to rebos, rebostreatment.com. You can find out more about our treatment center. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at ross at com, And I'll be happy to answer any of your questions. Have a great one, guys. Be safe
0: thank you for joining us this week on the power to create yourself we hope to have you tune in again next tuesday at noon eastern time 9 a.m pacific time for another edition with ross rameen on the voice america health and wellness channel have an enlightening week